Welcome to SCL Radio. <laughs> My name is Luna and I'm here with Barrett. We are here to kind of talk about the, I'm not going to call it protests because these are not protests. These are terrorist attacks basically by white supremacists on January 6th. Um, we are recording at 6.41 p.m. And I'll, let, I'll kick it off to Barrett to introduce himself, who is the philosopher-in-chief and founder of the Sustainable Culture Lab. Yeah, th- thanks for the, the good introduction. Yeah, I'm, I'm the philosopher-in-chief of SEL, and a lot of my work and the work of SEL talks about what's happened today at a very, at a, at a cultural level with like a, that shifts the discourse and in in injects new words into our conversations that I think help explain the nature of American life and the, the the troubling events that have happened today, and so we we felt it was necessary to have a have a podcast, a conversation today, to help you know hopefully shed light on what happened and provide people with some more language to articulate and understand the nature of what's uh, befalling us. So so yeah, yeah, lots of emotions and feelings knowing that. We won the Georgia Senate this morning, um, and it's kind of come down. I think the protests pretty much started around 4 p.m. Eastern time, or at least there were like some severe. Oh, no, there it was before 4 p.m. I actually had a it's really funny. I had a like a meeting today at 3.30 with D.C. people. And I sent them a message like, are we still doing this? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's three 30 and stuff's happening. I don't think we should have a chat if we didn't do it, but, but no, I think things were released were happening. I think noonish is when it, but then, you know, they stormed the Capitol building and whatnot around, I think two ish two something. And mm-hmm. then, so, so yeah, it's been going on for hours and it's probably going to go on for a handful more hours too. This is like a very, I hate to use the word unprecedented because I feel like that is, that has just been belabored. That word has just been repeated so much in 2020, but how are you feeling? And like, what are your thoughts as, and I'm curious if you would define this as a coup as well. But like, what are your thoughts as this coup is like unfurling in real time? Something that I'm not too sure too many folks were considering would happen at this time. So one of the big things about the U.S. is we're really much like an ahistorical society. Like we we like history to extend to like it's entertaining, but we don't really use American history with like a, a historical lens. Like if we talk about history, we'll talk about stuff that's 50 years old, you know, like that's history, but something that's like 150 years, Americans like to perceive that as that being so far in the past that it just doesn't have any relevance to the present, you know? And so when you have that like a historical perspective, everything is unprecedented. You know, <laughs> it's something that happened 80 years ago and we've decided to forget what happened 80 years ago. When it happened again, it's unprecedented. So like 
what's happening today, it isn't unprecedented. Like it is unprecedented that's happening at a national level. But throughout the South during Jim Crow and during uh, slavery and during reconstruction, there were always violent outbursts from white Americans to overthrow government to prevent, you know, people of color from having any influence over society. Like that's just always happened. And so like, if a, if a coup happened that swayed power in a city in Alabama or Mississippi, Americans would just kind of like brush it off. And that would happen in many ways just because like America's really big. It's very hard for someone in Connecticut to care that much about what's happening in Alabama. And that's not because the Connecticut person's bad. It's just like that's on the other side of a continent, essentially. But we always have we've always done this. And during Reconstruction, there were numerous attempts of white Americans trying to overthrow the governments that had black officials, you know, black mayors or black governors or all that kind of stuff. And so we've always done it. This is just this is always how it's been. We just like to forget that because it happened so far in the past that now is completely irrelevant and has no bearing on the present, which that's just the most absurd way to look at existence that I've ever heard. It makes everything a surprise. You know, like if I forgot what I did yesterday, then I would consider eating breakfast unprecedented. And like, that's just how America tries to function, which is just absurd. So today is not unprecedented in like the nature of America. It is unprecedented that it's happening at the Capitol building and that it's at a national level. Like that is not something that happens all the time. But the motives, the philosophy, the, the, the purpose, the reason for it, no, not unprecedented. And the, the approach is not unprecedented either. And so, and, and I think, you know, a key part of the work of SCL is to try to give new language to these cultural structures so that we can understand what's actually always happening. If we have cultural amnesia, you know, everything will be a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the fact too that you bring in the division of land and how that example you gave of how if a coup were to happen in a city in Alabama or Mississippi, it would be hard for someone to care in Connecticut. And that's because like, I still feel like there's great division between land in America. You know, like there's still like a very huge lack of connection between people and the land. And this is something that like you've addressed in one of SEL's newsletters and there's a word for it, which is pull dare on, right? Oh, poldering, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about maybe how we modeled a similar culture to polderin? Yeah, polderin. Polderin. It's it's Dutch, so I'm probably not saying it that well <laughs> because that language sounds different than you think. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think like there would be more unity during this time or even at any other time in America's history. Yeah, so polderin is really interesting. Basically, it's a Dutch word and it's due to the Netherlands 
being mostly underwater, like it's below sea level. And so Dutch people had to, to make land, they had to make canals and windmills and dams and dikes and whatnot to get rid of the water so that the land that was submerged could emerge. But what this means is that their whole, their towns are below sea level. So if a big storm comes or like the windmill breaks or the dike, you know, the dam bursts, their whole town could go away. And due to that constant threat of existence, like wiping them away, the, oh, and the land that they make is called a polder. That's called a polder. Like it means reclaimed land. But that threat means that the Dutch have a culture of coming together despite any difference. Like if you have a different religious belief, it doesn't matter if you are both staring death in the face, like you're gonna become friends, like you're gonna work together. If if you were mad at your friend, mad at if you hate your neighbor, but you're working to save the polder, you're gonna come together and scoop out the water and fix that stuff. And so that that's their culture. And I, I like polder and as an example, because I just I think it really shows how the connection to place can shape or does shape how people see and interact with the world. I think this is just like a really stark example. But if you look at other parts of Europe and other parts of the world, you can just see how the environment shapes how all of these people act. I just think Poldron's pretty stark. I think the US is a place where the people that colonized it, these Europeans, don't have a natural connection to the place. And the people who, who do have the connection, they decided to regard those people as savages and not listen to anything that they said. And they didn't take on any of that knowledge or connection to the environment. And so the environment here in many ways is viewed as like some sort of transactional thing that you, you interact with it in a way to generate money or to own it where like ownership, even if you're like, you take good care of it, you take good care of it because you're going to sell it at some point, you'll make money. It's like, it's not something that you live off of. It's something that you generate revenue from. And that's like a very big, big problem. But at the same time, the U.S. is also gigantic. We're talking states that are the size of countries and a country that's the size of a continent and an expectation that somebody on one side of the continent has a really great idea of the experiences of somebody on the other side of the continent. And that just like, that's just logistically hard to do. Like it, it would be like expecting a French person to know what it's like to grow up in St. Petersburg in Russia or a person in China, like in Shanghai to have a really good idea of what it's like growing up in like in, a, in Tehran. Or, or, or it, like, it's just, no, just not going to happen. So I, I think that's a way that America kind of not necessarily forgets, but just kind of remains uninformed about America. Because it's just, there's a lot of space that you have to be aware of. And if you are already starting without a connection to the environment at all, like, how are you going to learn anything? And that makes it so that, you know, bad stuff can happen next door and you just never know because next door is relatively far away. And if you aren't trying to like make money from next door, 
you probably aren't going to be interested in what happens there anyways. I want to bring a couple more words that you've written into SEL's newsletter into this conversation as well. One of them is something that SEL talks about a lot. It's combating ethnocide. And another word that I want to bring into this conversation is Seuss Real. Can you kind of talk about how these two words and any other words that you feel like describe this situation really well, ethnocide and Seuss Real, are the words that truly like define this moment in history and also America's past history as well? Yeah, so, so ethnocide is the key word that kind of launched all the words. <laughs> Basically, as a, as a journalist covering race and culture, it just hit me that I didn't think we had the adequate language to talk about our division. Like we talked about it a lot, but I didn't think we got closer to answers. We, got, we became quite good at articulating our emotional frustrations with our environment, but not really changing the environment, which is kind of like the point of the conversation. And so I, it hit me that we, our conversations that were supposed to be about race and class and inequality weren't actually about that. They were conversations about culture and the culture of American people. And so as a black man, I can't think about the culture of America without thinking about the influence of the transatlantic slave trade. And the transatlantic slave trade was an endeavor whose purpose was to extract and destroy the culture of African people, but keep African bodies. You know, like African people weren't able to use their African identifiers. They're, they weren't able to speak their language. You know, their, their clothes and their hairstyles are taken away. Their families are breaking up, breaking up. And all of this was an endeavor to like break the spirit of African people, but not physically break the bodies because you had to keep these bodies to grow and harvest and cultivate crops and be, be enslaved in perpetuity. And so when I looked at that from a cultural and not a racial lens, I, I saw like that's the destruction of culture. That's what that is. And the word ethnocide is, means the destruction of culture while keeping the people. I can talk about that word a lot and there's other parts of it, but when you acknowledge that ethnocide is this foundational part of colonial existence and the foundation of America was about incorporating ethnocide and condoning it, you now realize that that's inherently divisive. It's society is divided at its foundation. There's no universal. There's one group of people that's extracting one group of people's culture and another group of people who live to get their culture extracted. And that's that's how it works. And so the U.S. is, is just ethnocidal. There's no way of getting around it. And there's a lot of nuance to it, but how it manifests today is if one group, um, and this will be the, the word of the week this, uh, this week is ethnocider, which is the person who perpetrates ethnocide, they can only live, their way of life can only exist via continuing that oppression. The ethnocidee, they're always trying to live a way that's not being oppressed. So if they find a way to promote equality, that is a threat to ethnocidal oppression. That's a threat to the ethnocider's way of life. And you can see via, you know, democracy is, the narrative of it is equality. It, it's supposed to go towards that. And so, you know, the election of Barack Obama was a, was a celebration of equality. Uh, Joe Biden's victory, 
that was equality. Um, you know, the Georgia elections yesterday were equality, and those victories are all propelled by increasing the participation of people who were not supposed to be able to equitably do anything ever in America. And so when equality becomes a closer reality, there's always a faction in America, the ethnociders, who are going to try to like physically suppress that. And that's what's happening right now. Like that's just, that's how it works. And you can, if you look at America and incorporate history and have you know the capacity to do like a 200 year window and look at things, you can see when black people had rights or even tried to have rights, there was a strong physical suppression at every capacity of society. If it just meant you got dogs and local law enforcement to go chase down a slave that tried to like escape, that was it. Or, you know, maybe it's reconstruction and the black person just became elected the mayor. Now let's try to burn the town down and have a coup and kill him and kill all the white people that supported him and do rampant voter suppression at the next election so that he loses. It's all the same playbook. We just, due to America being so big, it's really easy for us to not notice how often it happens because it's, it's so spread out. It's just happening at a national level. And now it's easy for people to see what has always been happening. And so there's that. And then the other word, and in the word it's, it's surreal and it's French and S, it's spelled S-O-U-S-R-E-A-L. And sous in French means under. And so it's a word that SEO created. Um, and I created it because I got really frustrated at how the word surreal has been corrupted. Like surreal, sur means above. And it it's supposed to denote like a dreamlike existence where you aspire to create art or ideas or just have a life that's like living a dream. So surreal isn't something that's just like you think isn't real. It's something that's above real. It's dream real. And for a very long time, whenever Donald Trump or someone would do something that was so crazy and problematic that people thought it wasn't real, they'd say it was surreal. And that's just a complete corruption of language. And now the word we have to use to describe something that's above existence and the word for something that's below existence is the same word. That's the equivalent of having, you know, the word good, meaning good and bad. That's a problem. So I felt the need to create the word surreal to denote something that is like a nightmare that's below existence. You know, it's below reality and it's it's unreal in that it's beneath real. Um, and I think you know, what we witness today is something that we should consider to be surreal. Um, you could say, you know, Donald Trump's presidency has been surreal. And there's so many facets of American life that are just surreal. But the importance of being able to distinguish between something that's surreal 
And surreal, I think, is really important. Yeah, today is a surreal day. Truly, truly. I don't know if many people expected this. And I feel like for a lot of people, it is very nightmarish. These photos that are surfacing, these videos of the theft, the looting, the breaking in, the like breaking of windows. Very, It's it's a nightmare for a lot of people. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll say for me, um, I have peculiar emotions at these moments because like most people are in a position where they're struggling for the words to express their emotions mm -hmm. and creates a whole nother level of frustration and anxiety. And so when you look at something that you think is unprecedented, that seems to happen over and over again, and you don't have the language to articulate the thing that happens over and over again that you imagine won't ever happen, let alone happen more than once, that makes people feel really, really bad. And I'm strangely like in a different position because I don't think it's unprecedented. I know it's gonna happen over and over again. And I have the words to describe what's happening, that it happens and that it happens over and over again. And so it's, it's just, it's very intriguing for me because most of the time I have to talk to people and use language that is fairly inadequate just so that I can have conversations. And these times when people don't know what to say, I know exactly what to say. And there's, there's a sense of like liber liberty and like freedom and the capacity to like have precise words for what's going on. And so I'm, a, I, I'm in a slightly different emotional state today than a lot of people that I've spoken with. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I feel like I think that causes a lot of the fear and confusion is the lack of words to describe a situation or a series of emotions that people might be feeling, which is why I think the work at SEL is essential. And I think that your work, especially in describing the American cycle, which we don't have to get into now, <laughs> but it essentially predicted this, this, coup, this like level of state sanctioned violence. But I think a lot of people still rejected this idea because of the faith and the belief that America has good moral judgment. And I think that's also something that SEO works on a lot is to recognize that America was founded on ethnocidal, on an ethnocidal foundation. And I think a lot of people were still are still trying to get this message out that America is not as good as it seems, yourself included. <laughs> yeah, it, like I, it's, it's weird to say, but I have plenty of conversations with people and I'll just say, I don't understand why someone would expect a black person to think America's good. And it's a really simple question. And whenever I, I ask people that, they totally know what I'm talking about. And that, that changes the whole dynamic. Like, it's, it's a very simple question. Like, I will say like, I can understand why a white person would wanna think America's good. Like, you know, they're responsible for the whole thing. You know, like if, <laughs> no matter what you do, if I take a, an exam in college and I do my best, I'm gonna believe that I got an A. Until someone gives me back the paper and says I got a B or a C or whatever, 
I'm going to be really confident that I got an A. <laughs> like, that's that's how white people function with America. And I, I, I understand that. But you have to have the language to say, actually, this is a C. You know, now let's create structures to maybe help you get an A. But, you know, this is this is like a D minus. Good try. But <laughs> but as a black person, like, you know, we we weren't brought here to get any of the stuff that America says you're supposed to get in America. So why would we like it? Why would we say it's good? And if we've lived here, if black people have been here since the beginning of America and there's no expectation that we would think it's good, then how can you honestly say that the place is good? Like you can say that it has good intentions. You could argue that, but who cares about good intentions? Like that's a good start, but if I have the intention of making an A, that doesn't mean that I got an A, doesn't at all. If it means if I had the intention to get an A and I got a D, now that means, all right, cool. At least this person who's bad at something has the desire to be good at it. Now I should hope that we can work together and get better at it. That's the conversation. And I think, you know, I, th I think it's very hard for people to really come to grips with that really basic concept that we confront at, a, at, a, at micro levels thousands of times a day. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really important. I feel like people often undermine the phrase like, you know, or just the thought, the concept of like intention versus impact. And it's very clear the impact of an ethnocidal foundation. It, that's very clear, I think. Um, but a lot a lot of that gets lost in translation because of the good intentions in air quotes. <laughs> and to take it to another level, if, you, if you're an ethnocidal society and you're the dominant person and you want to stay on top all the time, you're going to create a structure where they judge you based on your intent. Because if they're judging you based on the impact of your actions, you could lose. You know, you could do something bad. And if that means you did something bad and they're judging you on that, you might not be the boss anymore. However, they're only judging you on your intent. And the only way for them to know what your intent is, is for you to tell them what your intent is. Well, then let's judge me on that. And I'll tell you that my intent is always to do good stuff and that I, I do good stuff all the time. And I'm always here to do good things. And let's just focus on that. It's like, <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing ever. And that's just what America tells people, which is ridiculous. I mean, knowing that, you know, that for a lot of people, a lot of ethnociders, a lot of white folks, like for them, like the fact that they had good intentions is good enough for them. Like, what do you think is actually going to have, like, force them to listen and for a real reckoning. I think some people came to a real reckoning like last summer of 2020, but I'm not too sure if there has been a national reckoning of our ethnocidal foundations and also in how people perpetuate ethnocide despite being well-intentioned. Yeah, so like, I don't have the answer to that. I, you know, I think the key thing is asking the right questions. I use the example of Poldrin for culture. And like the reason the Poldrin culture is really key is that the thing that made the Dutch come together 
is that they had the threat of extinction all the time. Like they literally had to stare death in the face. Like the North Sea is bringing some cold water, heavy winds. And if you ain't waking up and checking your machinery, you could wake up and you're dead and not wake up, you know, or like your your whole crops are gone and everything. Like that's just, that's just it. Like they're, I think it was like the 1940s or 1950s, like a, a big storm exceeded the expectations the Dutch had of like what a storm could be. And the water went over the dam and like a thousand people died and like 20,000 animals died in a day. And they were like, oh, wow. So they went and they made a new, new dam to protect the water that is capable of withstanding a storm that they can't even imagine being possible to happen on earth ever, you know? So the thing that's tragic about that is for a lot of people to learn things, they have to be able to like, they have to actually like stare death in the face or they have to be empathetic or close enough with somebody else who is staring it in the face that they realize that it's real. And so if you look at this summer with uh, George Floyd, like the tipping point for George Floyd for me was that it was basically like a decade worth of the Black Lives Matter movement. And as like the movement continued, more and more white people were like, I think this may be happening, you know? Like, I, you know, I don't think Barrett's exaggerating as much. And that happened like each time. And then the video for George Floyd was just so like barbaric that it made it harder to think that these black people, who are your friends, who are like your coworkers, there, you know, there's, there's no like theoretical connection. Like you go to school with these people, you work, they live in your neighborhood, are actually encountering that severity of abuse from people whose salaries are based off of their tax dollars. Like they're paying those people to protect them and they're terrorizing them to a degree that like is hard to even comprehend. It's so barbaric. Like that was a tipping point because I think white people could see themselves or see a good friend of theirs, theirs die in that manner. And so like the tipping point is like the realization of death and existence. And, you know, some places like the Netherlands due to the weather, it makes people have to think about it a bit more often than other places. And coincidentally that helped them become slightly better people than other people in Europe. Like the Dutch have the longest history of religious tolerance in all of Europe. Like when, when Protestantism happened and Europe was like, all right, we got to go kill all these Protestants. <laughs> the Dutch were like, religious tolerance. We can coexist together. Protestants, Catholics, they can all chill in this swamp that we've like carved out some land. And, and you know, that's, I think that's quite significant. That so. makes me think of, and I'm super late to this game, but I just watched um, HBO's Watchmen that rendition of Watchmen. Oh, yeah. um, but I remember in high school having to read the graphic novel and like, it just reminds me of Adrian Veidt's whole thing about having a common enemy 
to fight against to unite like the global community Mm -hmm. um which i still think is like interesting and he's definitely he was like a wild man (laughs) who created this like alien that you know killed three million people to to tell everyone that this was like this is a threat basically but an unknown threat you know and you know that's a a key thing about the u.s and you know his perspective is very american having a common enemy america loves having a common enemy like but if you look at ethnocide, the ethnocide was the common enemy. And that enemy was always going to exist because it's just not natural for human beings to want to live as perpetually subjugated people. So every day, the ethnocide posed a threat to the ethnocider's way of life. They're always going to find a way to unite to to stop that common enemy because that common enemy is every day is going to say, I'd like to be able to live as a human being. There's no denying that. And so, you know, like America is built around having a common enemy. And I don't think it's surprising when we look internationally, we always try to find a common enemy, whether that's the Soviet Union or the Middle East, or you know, whatever, or just communism in general, uh, regardless of what continent it's on. You know, so that's just how it is, and you know, they'll they'll destroy democracy if if it'll stop that common enemy who who wants to live as a free person. Right, right. So basically, it's an imaginary common enemy, which I think is like, you know, if you didn't see that imaginary common enemy surface today, like during the, during these like white supremacist terrorist attacks. And I think that says a lot about the image of America that you want to uphold this like very false image of America's moral judgment. Yeah. Like one of the big issues for America's image is, um, this is kind of complicated, but like, people, white people come from Europe and like Europe has a bunch of white people because they just look like that. Like, we don't know why, you know, clearly it's the environment, you know, the amount of sunlight people got over thousands of years or something like that influence what, what their bodies look like. We're real simple, you know, but like, if you're not in Europe, you can't, sustaining a white complexion is not a laissez-faire thing, you know, like, it's something that you have to like have an, a, an agenda, a policy of like forcefully removing the other people of that place because if they mix with you, you're not gonna look like you're from Europe anymore because you're not in Europe anymore. And if you import a whole bunch of people from Africa, another continent whose people look even less like you than indigenous Americans, sustaining your whiteness is a policy. You're not going to sustain your whiteness by casually going around just being nice to everyone and treating everybody equally. Like that's just not going to happen. And I think like a, a key thing that Americans just don't ever think about is that like whiteness is not a laissez-faire thing. Like it's a policy. It's a it's it's something that that's sustained based on constant division. That's it. And there's like no other way to get around it. And 
if you think that whiteness in America is the same thing as being white in Denmark, that's crazy. People are white in Denmark because they've always been white. You know, you get in, get in a time machine and go to Denmark 400 years ago, they look the same. Like, there's no difference. 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, same people. That's just not physically possible to happen in America. It's not a thing. And I, and I think that's like a major oversight. And if the thing that you believe is natural and occurs without any effort is actually something occur that occurs that's not natural and requires constant effort, <laughs> like, like up is down, down is up now, left is right. Like it does nothing make sense. And like that's just the US and so many things. Whiteness as a policy. I never thought about it like that, but I mean, you're totally right. It does require effort to keep to keep the whiteness. In all honesty, in America, yeah, like it's um, not attached to place. There's no attachment to place there. Yeah, like you are you're Swedish because you live in Sweden, and you're not Italian because you don't live in Italy. You may look a lot like an Italian, but you're not that because your identity is attached to your place. Here, people's identity isn't attached to their place. It's attached to how they look. And how they look is something that's sustained by constant division and oppression because whiteness is the standard in America, just an arbitrary rule, one drop rule. It's a zero sum game. It's not shareable. There's no, there's no modification. Like you either look it or you don't. And if you don't look it, then you aren't it. And so you can't sustain it by like sharing or being equal, like at scale. That doesn't mean that like if a white person and a white person like each other, that like they're racist or something or they don't like other people. No, of course not. Like you're allowed to like however you want, you know, so long as you get a you know, it's, it's equal and you're, it's fair and all that kind of stuff. But just, we're talking about at scale you know, America's like 50, well, to be like 50% like minority or non-white. And we still don't have a massive population of mixed people that need like a new name. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I mean, that that's... This doesn't make any sense. Like if you look at the South and you're talking about Civil War time or pre-Civil War, in many of these states, about 50-50, black and white. That region, it's about it like 60-40, black and white, you know, white and black. How could you have an area that's 50-50, 60-40, two groups of people, and not wake up and like in 50 years have a massive amount of people that are just mixed? Like, right, multi-multiracial. Like like how would that just not organically happen? Like America's made interracial coupling legal since the 1960s. And there's way more mixed race people now than ever in the history of the country. Like this isn't rocket science, right? You know, like it's, it's not that complicated. We just aren't ever inclined to think this way. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. like the fact that the South still has massive amounts of white people 
it's not due to laissez-faire natural order of things. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, it is. It really is. I don't want to take up too much of your time. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, what are, my final question really that I, I really want to hear from you is, you know, there another component that SEL talks about is not just combating ethnocide, but also cultivating Eftopian places. I mean, where do you see America after this? I mean, today has just been, I you know, a mix of emotions, a lot of reckoning, a lot of reala- realizing that that even though there can be wins for people of color and communities of color, we're going to have to fight to sustain those wins. And it may be seconds after we have won or hours after we have declared a victory. So where do you see America going after this? How do you think we can cultivate an utopian place after this atrocity, this violence and, and these threats? Yeah. So, you know, I'm not, you know, Nostradamus, so I don't, I can't say where, what's going to happen. But like, what I would say is our philosophy at SEL, at the very least, is the first thing you have to do is be aware of ethnocide so that you know what you're combating. Like, if you, if you haven't diagnosed the illness, then like, you're not going to be able to make vaccines. Like, this is how it is. And America's illness is ethnocide. It's, you know, that's, that's just a fact. And so being aware of ethnocide, I think makes people more capable of combating it, recognizing that stuff like this, they're not unprecedented and that it makes total sense that America would, would behave in this way. Like that's empowering to know that. It does in many ways make people like sad because it means like the nature of our society is way worse than we thought. And that's upsetting, but you got to look at the opportunity that at least now that you know the problem, you have the capacity to to fix it. You know, um, it's not a guarantee that you'll fix it, but at least you have the capacity to because you know what the problem is. So you know what we believe and try to do, or or do, is first of all we promote doing ethnogenesis or cultural naissance, which is the creation of culture. If you don't live in a place that it exists to destroy culture and normalize the destruction of culture, well, then you have to start engaging in practices to create culture and normalize the creation of culture, you know, where you do more cultural appreciation and less cultural appropriation, stuff like that. And we, you know, we talk about this quite a bit at, at, at SEL. But another thing that we like to do is, is I think a lot of times people in America that want to do good are preoccupied by stopping bad things. And if you are primarily reactionary, then you can't be proactive. You can't actually make the change. You're just like plugging holes in a sinking ship and not building like a better ship. Um, And so to try to like focus people's attention towards doing good uh, instead of stopping bad we like to use the term evtopia, which just means good place. But it, the word's important because the word utopia doesn't mean what we think it means. Utopia means non-existent, good place. And so like, it's quite dystopian to live in a place that doesn't have a word for good place. 
the word that you think means good place means non-existent good place. Like that's some twisted Orwellian stuff right there. And that's where America's at. And that's where like Western civilization's at in many ways. So we just use the word evtopia. EU means good um, and topia means place. And so if you can focus on making and cultivating and sustaining a good place, and if you have an understanding of what good means, because good is basically good is are things that sustain and nurture you, not necessarily things that make you feel good. Like, you know, there are a lot of drugs that make people feel good, that make them live shorter lives. <laughs> Those aren't good for you. But like a good friend is a good friend because they're there to support you. And it's shown that if you have like a, a nice support group of good friends that helps you live longer, healthier lives with less stress and anxiety and stuff. And so like, that's a good thing. Those are nurturing, supportive things that help you exist and aren't just about making you feel a particular way at a particular time. And so, you know, we try to prompt conversations and thoughts about cultivating evtopian spaces and creating ethnogenesis or cultural naissance, as we call it, we also call it. And I think, you know, this provides a nice healthy foil to recognizing encountering ethnocide, because we can't just spend our entire life countering something bad. We got to have a capacity to try to make something good. And that's still, that's going to mean that you will have to counter bad. Like if you eat a bunch of fruits and you're healthy, that doesn't mean that you say, oh, I'm going to take a break and go eat some poison. Like, no, no, no. You kind of, you kind of, you're not going to eat the poison. You got, you got to counter that. <laughs> or if you, or if you work out and you have a cheat day, like I'm going to eat a candy bar, like, you know, that's bad. And now you're going to counter that by like doing some extra exercise, you know? So it's, it's got to be a balance. And so that's, that's a, that's a thing that we do. Yeah. Well, I hope we can find that balance soon, soon after this, although maybe, I don't know, it might take some time, but yeah. I hope we find balance too. I don't know when it's going to happen. You know, I don't, I can't predict the future, but I can be less surprised when things happen. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. Thanks for the conversation. I, I, yeah. Thank you, Barrett. Yeah. And we know we'll, we'll do it again, hopefully under better circumstances. Um, For sure. Yeah. Under more well-balanced, fruit-filled, less poisony (laughs) environments and situations. Yeah, totally. And, you know, for everyone listening, you know, check us out on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, it's scl.communities, our website and all that kind of stuff. Any, any social media things I should say, or you should say Luna? Subscribe to our SCL newsletter. To get a good word, yeah, every week at the start of the week on Sundays. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for listening, people. Talk to you later.